I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is author, speaker, and social worker, Deborah Grayson Regal. Her book is Go to Help, 31 Strategies to Offer, Ask for, and Accept Help. Knowing how to extend a helping hand or ask for assistance when needed is one of the best ways to build trusting, collaborative, and mutually beneficial relationships with colleagues, clients, family, and friends. And yet for far too many folks, help fluency, as we call it, remains elusive. Mother and daughter team Deborah Grayson Regal and Sophie Regal share a truly groundbreaking, easy-to-use guide that teaches concrete strategies to help readers get better at offering, asking for, and accepting help while exploring the emotional barriers that sometimes prevent us from receiving the help we need. Deborah teaches leadership communication for Columbia Business School's Women in Leadership program. She writes regularly for the Harvard Business Review and is an instructor of management communication at the Wharton School at UPenn. Welcome to the show, Deborah. Nice to have you on. Thanks so much for having me. Great to have a, a uh, fellow social worker. Uh, great topic. Yes. Uh, and, and I have to say, this is a topic, and I've done thousands of interviews. We've never really explored this topic before about get, giving and receiving help. And I, I assume it's, it becomes a really, maybe a much bigger issue uh, considering the climate that we're in now, the environmental changes, social changes, COVID, all of these kinds of things. So, um I, I would imagine that it, it's important for us to be able to obviously be able to give help and accept help, but not so easy. What, a, what this is a word for it? Help fluency. That's what you call it. What is help fluency? Help fluency. Yeah. Yeah. So help fluency is the idea that we need to have a wide range of helping strategies, and and our, our research found that most people have two go-to strategies when somebody wants or, or needs help. And strategy one is, let me just do it for you. And strategy two is, let me just tell you how you should do it. Um, and sometimes that's exactly what somebody needs, but not nearly as often as we, <laughs> as our behaviors would indicate. And so we want uh, everyone, whether you're a leader in an organization or a parent or a partner, to have a, a range of ways that you can offer help. And if you're somebody who needs help, we want you to have the same language to be able to be really specific about what kind of help you need. Do I need somebody to empathize with me? Do I need somebody to teach me a skill? Do I need somebody to cheerlead me? Do I need somebody to point out my blind spots? There are a lot of ways that we can help and we're, we tend to be pretty limited. Can we talk specifically about the different environments? For instance, like if somebody gets sick, and I this is a, probably a, a good example, uh, one gets really sick, has cancer, uh, people want to help. They don't exactly know how to help. They sometimes can't even say the word cancer. That would be like a medical setting. But as you described, there are lots of different kinds of settings, so I am assuming there's different ways to approach. Let's start with how can I help you? Yeah, and, and in fact, that is probably one of the most important questions that anybody can ask, right? How can I help you or what kind of help would be most helpful to you? And one of the things we found is that sometimes even that question is too broad. Somebody doesn't know what kind of help they need. And uh, we think it's helpful to have a little bit of a helping menu. Of course, our book is 31 items on the menu, which could be, you know, (laughs) overwhelming (laughs) for anyone. But to say, you know, are you looking 
for a little emotional support right now? Is there a, a task that I can take off your plate for you right now? Do you want somebody just to sit and listen? So even to be able to offer people a few choices of what kind of help would be helpful is moves them in the right direction. And the other thing, <clears throat> excuse me, that we found is if you ask somebody the question, what wouldn't feel helpful to you right now? Most of us are able to answer that one pretty quickly. So if you can start eliminating things, that can get somebody on, on the right path of identifying the kind of help they need so that you can be with and for them in their moment of need, whether it's a sickness, uh, whether it's a, a, you know, a, a physical or mental health challenge, whether it's a leadership challenge or any, a parenting challenge. What about the emotional barriers? Because I think that's critical, obviously. You're a social worker. This is your area of expertise. When you know that person needs help or family needs help or a colleague needs help, but you also understand that they are not going to accept it. So how do you break through the emotional barrier? Because they feel like they're weak. They feel like they're powerless. They don't want you to see them that way. So they're going to say, no, I really don't need help. Yeah, so these are are what are known as reputational barriers. And all of us, well, I can't say all of us because I haven't met everyone, but most of us have some um, sense of the reputational costs for asking for help. And those could be from our family of origin. uh, Those could be the culture that we were raised in. It could be how we were treated by a teacher or an early boss or a, a partner that uh, gave us a hard time or made us feel, you know, embarrassed and asking for help. And so it's, it's really important to recognize that most people will have some reputational barriers that sound like, I don't want to seem weak. Um, I don't want to seem less than credible. Um, and in fact, the research shows that kids as young as seven years old start to develop those reputational barriers, which means that in school, we learn not to ask for help because we don't want to be embarrassed. And if I'm not seven anymore, I'm several decades beyond that, we've, uh, you know, that's been really reinforced. And so some things you can do are number one, to acknowledge the the potential reputational barriers. Another thing that you can do is to let that person know how helpful they were to you in your time of need, which also taps into uh, what's known as the reciprocity bias, our bias to want to return things to people who have given us things. You could tell them a story about a time it was really, really hard for you to ask for help, but you did it and and the positive outcome that it had. Um, You can remind them that asking if they were to accept your help, you would take it as a gift that you would be flattered and honored. I mean, in my entire life, I've never had anybody insulted that I thought they could help me. Never. Um, they may not have wanted to help me, but it didn't hurt their feelings that I thought that they, that they were resourceful enough to be helpful to me. Um, and the one other thing that I, uh, we have a whole chunk in the book about this is you cannot make somebody accept your help who does not want it. Um, and that is really hard. It's particularly hard, perhaps, for parents. I'm a mom of... Uh, two 21-year-olds, so we're just at that point where, uh, you know, asking for my help or accepting my help gets trickier and trickier, and you can't not make somebody accept your help. That's a good example with the kids. Okay, two 21-year-olds you have, so I assume they're twins? <laughs> they are twins, yes. 
And are they different in terms of, are the, well, you said, I think you have a boy and a girl, right? You have a daughter that you I mentioned. Do. Yep, my yeah, son so Jacob and the, my daughter Sophie, and, and okay. Sophie's my co-author on this book. Right, okay, so they're not identical twins. Um, not at all. Yeah, not at all. Okay, personality-wise, is there one, because I like to kind of put a face on all of this. It, yeah. Say one of the twins who would say, has no problem accepting help from you, whatever it is, or the other one has a lot of difficulty, or maybe that's not the case, because these are two different personalities yeah. that you're very close to. Yeah, they're to, two, so, right, yeah. two two very different personalities, um, and um, I think one of them is sometimes quicker to ask for help than the other, um, and yet both of them uh, accept help because we have been very clear to not ha- make it have reputational costs, right? So to say things like, you shouldn't need help, you should be able to do this on your own by now, uh, you know, please come to us for help. When they've come to us for help, we have recognized, rewarded it, appreciated it. We have, my husband and I have asked them for help repeatedly, so they know that this is not hierarchical, it's, it's a part of our family culture, um, but I will share a little um, trick that I use um, with my son, Jacob, and I don't think this will come as a surprise for him. Um, I th- one of the things that happens is sometimes I will want to help him when he has not asked for help. And so here, it, because I want to minimize his, his, you know, defenses, his sense of agency and autonomy and any reputational costs, what I'll say to him is, you know, may I offer you a piece of advice and you can do whatever you want with it. And he has always said yes. And what I will do is I will share the piece of advice and then I will say, and I don't want you to say anything to me now. I don't need a thank you. I don't need a mom. That's ridiculous. Don't say anything other than okay. And you know, just sleep on it. And I would say, you know, far more often than not, he takes my advice, which I try not to give too often. Um, but I don't want him to feel like he has to respond in the moment. I really want him to put it through his own filters and consider it. And I think that's an important thing for all of us to consider is, is when we're helping somebody, um, think about the timeline that works for them as much as the timeline that works for you. Well, I think one thing you just said, which is critical, you're talking about timelines, also giving people an opportunity. I know for myself, I need time to sleep on it, whatever the issue may be. Just give me a chance to decide maybe what I need for help or do I want it or, you know, whatever I I, I need to, to think about. But just give me time. I don't want to accept it right away necessarily. But when I think about it, then I can tell you what I need and give you that timeline. So give people like, I think that's really important what you just said. Are there people, yeah, yeah are there people, Deborah, who ask for too much help? Like you have, uh, you may have a friend or a, 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 a family member who's always asking for help is that's sort of the opposite of what we're talking about. But um, yep. yeah. Yeah, there, there certainly, and, and I want to um, sort of put this in, in, maybe some morally neutral language, which is you may have a relationship with somebody who asks for help um, too much for, for you, right? So I don't want somebody who needs a lot of help to feel like they shouldn't need it, but it may be more than you can help them with. And I think that's a, a, you know, a really important 
phrase because we don't want the other person to, you know, to feel like we're experiencing them as needy, even if we do, but it may be more than you can help with right now. Um, and so saying to somebody in our, in our work lives or our personal lives or in our communities, um, that's more than I can help you with right now. What other resources do you have available? Um, and in a book, we talk about what's known as the resourceful mindset. So, and it's something actually that I learned when I was in coaching school, which is if you do not believe that the person you're trying to help is resourceful, meaning that they have resources available to them other than, other than just one, um, you're going to actually try to fix them. And very few of us want to be fixed. I mean, if we want to be fixed, we hopefully would go to a professional um, and to just remind them that they probably have other resources and give them the space to think about those. Sometimes you withdrawing your help because you have other things that need your attention or more pressing help you need to give uh, or even just to take care of yourself will create the space for them to come up with other resources. Now, these examples, primarily, we've been talking about probably friends and family. But as I read in the intro, you, you're teaching at Wharton, uh, you are teaching at Columbia. So those, I assume, are more business situations, different strategies or not? Well, if you're in a... Yeah, uh, at, yeah. it's okay. actually all the same strategies, just different uh, just. Uh, different scenarios, right? So if you think about in the workplace, how frequently people, uh, you know, a manager is likely to say, let me tell you how to do that, or let me do it for you, uh, because they feel like it'll just be easier for me to do it myself, or there's only one right way of handling this, or, you know, or it'll be quicker. Um, those can be helpful in the moment, and can certainly be helpful, right? Let me, let me, tell you how to do it is really helpful when somebody is learning a new skill, but let me tell you how to do it when somebody is on the road to mastering a skill is called micromanaging. And which is why I think leaders as much as anybody else need to develop their health fluency so that they can, for example, raise the bar for you, right? Communicate their, their confidence and their high expectations of your ability to do something autonomously. That's another way of helping that feels very different than let me tell you what to do and how to do it. In a business situation, though, I can think I would think of myself as well. If they're going to try and tell me how to do it uh, and the way to do it, I'm going to be thinking they're going to think I'm incompetent. I'm not going to ask because I might lose my job or the person sitting beside me is after my job and they may know how to do it. And that could those are those reputational costs. Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. It comes full circle. When you start to worry about um, how will other people think of me, look at me, consider me for promotional opportunities, if I ask for help, uh, there are, are reputational costs that you're considering. However, we don't often consider the long-term reputational cost of doing it wrong, um, of making a, a, a mistake, uh, of all of those things. And, and one of the core competencies that I believe leaders in any organization need to have is creating the culture that makes it, uh, that lowers the reputational barriers and makes it okay to make mistakes, okay to ask for help, recognized and rewarded for asking for help. Um, you know, all the things that we suggested that a, a parent do, such as 
tell a story of a time where you were reluctant to ask for help, but you asked for it and the positive outcome it had. We need our leaders to be doing that as well. So does this change in the context of doing uh, working at home, for instance, because uh, I, I know you, you've mentioned and, and you mentioned in your book, I mean, it's very different if you're going to work every day, let's say, and you are in the business, where actually in the physical building with your mm-hmm. colleagues and your uh, bosses. But what about when you're at home and you're doing a lot of stuff on Zoom, for instance? Um, how does that work? Yep. Is it different? I think you need to be a little bit more planful and deliberate because you're less likely to run into somebody in, you know, in the break room. Uh, <laughs> do people still have break rooms? I think so, right? Uh, I'm, I'm showing my age here, but you're less likely to run into somebody in the hallway or the break room and say, you know, uh, hey, um, Sue, I really could use your help on this project. Could you stop by my office a little bit later today? So you may need to be more deliberate in scheduling that time. Or another way to think about it is to make um, ask, asking and offering help a part of every one-on-one, right? So if you're having regular one-on-ones with your direct report or if you are the direct report, you're having them with your manager, there should be a help part of the agenda where you talk about the help that each of you needs or you make offers of help. What can I take off your plate? Where could you use a little cheerleading? Is there anything you'd like me to teach you so that you can learn to do it on your own? And that way it starts to get embedded in the culture and you don't have to make a, a special appointment for it. You know, it's interesting. I I said, uh, well, I just said, I've said it twice, I guess, you know, you teach at Columbia and you also teach at Wharton. And I had a son who went to Wharton and I don't think you'll mind me saying this, but it's pretty cutthroat. And so I'm th- trying to put yeah. this in the context of like, they're going to ask for help. They're all like, you know, out there, big time competition to get out there and make a lot of money and do whatever they're going to do. But um, I was sort of tra- going through that in my mind. How does that work when you're teaching these communication schools at, at skills at, at Wharton? Well, from my perspective, you know, as somebody who served as an instructor, it is my job to be of help, right? They have come for my help and not just my help, right? So they are in the mindset of taking, of taking the feedback and improving their presentation and communication skills. Um, in addition, at least in the classes that I've taught, there's a lot of peer feedback. So they are both giving help and receiving help from their peers as well. I know that they also work on a lot of group projects, and so they're hopefully in the modality of helping one another. And it very much comes back to those, you know, perceived reputational barriers. And, uh, you know, in, in my classes, at least, I make asking for help one of the things that they get graded on, right? Like their willingness to hear feedback, take it, make a change, reach out to me between classes and ask for help. Those are things that I judge favorably, and I can't speak for other instructors or professors um, at the business schools that I teach at, but that's a culture that I try to create in my classroom. As a coach, can you give us an example of probably one of the most difficult situations that you've been called in to help rectify or fix or like a specific situation that you think was maybe one of the most difficult or um scenarios in terms of asking for help or giving help? 
Yeah. Um, so one of the most challenging scenarios I had was coaching an outgoing leader of an organization and the incoming leader of the organization um, <laughs> who were overlapping at the same time. That was really, really tricky for every reason that you can imagine, right? So the incoming leader of the organization was trying to establish, you know, autonomy, a reputation, a way of doing things that was their own way. The outgoing leader of the organization had some pretty entrenched beliefs about how things should be done currently, how things should be done moving forward. Um, and in fact, the outgoing leader of the organization was... Um, uh, hurting the reputation, taking active measures to hurt the reputation of the incoming leader. Um, the outgoing leader didn't agree with the incoming leader's approach, strategy, relationships, you name it, and didn't keep silent about it. And that was um, extremely toxic. And in fact, at one point, the incoming leader said that they felt humiliated by the outgoing leader and the outgoing leader said good that was my intention so question how did you fix it (laughs) what did you do what (laughs) happened what was the outcome yeah um so the outcome was not uh was not great uh, i have to say i mean we spent a lot of time talking about what both people wanted for the organization, right? The organization in the present and the future. Um, unfortunately, the uh, waters had been poisoned enough by the time the outgoing leader was ready to leave that the incoming leader decided to move on. Um, and so I don't think that was the outcome that anybody wanted to see happen, um, but the outgoing leader was not interested in changing their approach or behavior. So that's a great lesson, I guess, for all of us in, if, in those kinds of situations. What about, is there a difference between, let's say, family businesses and public companies or the type of company that you're, that you're working with when it comes to helping and asking for help? Yeah, that's a great question to which I do not have um, a research to answer. My sense is that there are differences, and that's not my area of expertise. So I'm going to leave that to the people uh, who research that kind of stuff. Okay, great. Well, that's a let's go on to because uh, we haven't we had 31 strategies. I think we've touched on a few. Yeah, yeah. But, and and I just want to say, if yeah. I can for a second, but a really important skill in helping <laughs> is knowing when you can't help. And that was something where I was like, nope, I cannot help you with that. And I have no problem saying that because I know that if that's something that's really interesting to you, I can introduce you to people who can help you with that. But I'm not always the helping resource. And so I, I want to, uh, without patting myself on the back too much, I want to demonstrate that that's a strategy, which is, I hear you need help with that. I'm not the person to help you with that. Yeah. And I'm not that's worried a, about my reputation. You know, uh, that's a great strategy. And I think that starts, I guess, I think that starts at home. I mean, I did that with my own kids. I have a grandson visiting me right now um, who's six years old and there are certain things that I know and certain things that I don't but I want to be all kind of all knowing to him but being able to say you know I don't I don't really understand that and a lot of it has to do with technology Uh, but I can say that and so and so and your grandfather or your father or your mother maybe they can help you and being able to say I can't do it yeah so That's right. And I think that is, and I'll share with you that one of the most 
consistent pieces of positive feedback that I get from my clients, right? So the, the companies that I work with where I do, you know, training, coaching, leadership development is they know that if they call me and say, hey, Deb, can you lead a program on X? If that is not in my zone of genius, I'm going to tell them, no, nope, I, that is not what I know how to do. That's not my experience and expertise. But because one of the helping strategies is um, offer somebody resources, I'm trying to see which number it is, but I'm not going to waste our time on that. What I um, often do is say, nope, that's not what I know how to do. May I introduce you to somebody who would be great at this? And my clients always know that they're going to get really high quality work from me because I will only take on work where I have expertise and experience. Yeah. Uh, great example, because there are a lot of people who I, I, I put the uh, title, I give them the title of the fixer. They think they can fix everything. Actually, I come from a family like that where everybody thinks they know everything. Mm. I'm exaggerating to some extent, but uh, in case your family's re- listening. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, but that is the family dynamic because, you know, oh, I know how to do that. And then there's competition for I can fix it. And the next person, no, I can fix it. So that comes into play not only, I'm sure, in my family, but in lots of families. So you do have to be careful of that. Um, Here's another example. This is back to the family thing, but I remember this is another example, going to my father and asking him, can you do this? Can you do that? And at some point he would say, you know, I've done that. I know how to do that, but you need to learn how to do it. So let's let you help you to figure it out because I think that's important too um, and I'm sure that's part of one of the strategies but um, and I, I absolutely always, yeah that that's exactly right I mean that is sometimes we need somebody to to do it for you and sometimes you need somebody to teach you how to do it um, and in fact we have a whole category of strategies that include you know let me tell you what to do let me take it off your plate and do it for you let me um one of our favorite strategies that uh, that I actually recently wrote a Harvard Business Review article about is body doubling. And body doubling is we're each going to do what we need to work on, but we're going to be together, right? So it's, it's like with kids with parallel play. So I'm going to write my next article. You're going to sit here and get your taxes in order, but we're holding each other accountable while we're each doing our own thing. Great example. And I know there are so many more strategies, obviously, that we didn't cover. We have a couple minutes left. So I've been talking to Deborah Grayson Regal, MSW, author, speaker, author of Go to Help, 31 Strategies to Offer, Ask for, and Accept Help. Deborah, website and or websites we can go to for more information about your work, your coaching, and the book. Yeah. Great. So you can find me at DebraGraysonRegal.com, uh, D-E-B-O-R-A-H-G-R-A-Y-S-O-N-R-I-E-G-E-L.com. You can find me on uh, LinkedIn as well. Uh, and just as a little warning to your listeners, my name is Deborah Grayson Regal. One sister-in-law is Deborah Grayson. My other sister-in-law is Deborah Regal. <laughs> so please look for me uh, on LinkedIn. I'll be the one in the fuchsia jacket. Uh, that's how you'll find me. Um, you can also find me on YouTube. I have lots of uh, videos around my strategies. Uh, and you can also find the book Go to Help on Amazon. And I have to say, you must have done a great job with your daughter because you're working with her. So I think uh, that's sort of plays yeah, to... Yeah, I think she yeah. did a great job with me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes, this is our second book together, and um, it is amazing for two people who don't really like writing how much uh, joy we get out of the books we've written together. 
That's great. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Great information. Thanks for having me. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. (laughs) 